Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dark Room Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Paul, and I'm here at Cedar Point for a hollow weekend, or a haunted hollow weekend, they call it. I don't know if you could hear that roller coaster just going by. And I'm here more as a designated driver, more than anything, because I don't ride any of the rides. I just sit and watch. Although, um, this trip has kindled my love of the musical stage because I've seen a lot of dancing and singing on stage today. It hasn't been that bad. A lot of Glee-style singing and familiar songs, but it hasn't been that bad at all. I'm surprised, pleasantly surprised. We did go through a haunted house, kind of a kid's haunted house since it is a hollow weekend. And it wasn't, it wasn't really scary, but it was pretty neat. A lot of uh, neat laboratory set stuff and uh, kind of creepy looking things. And we got to watch a haunted parade with Snoopy and I think Linus and Sally, I think, were in it too. So, but anyway, hopefully I'll give you a little bit of taste of Haunted Hollow Weekends this show and talk about a little bit of movie-related stuff. But as always, there's no guarantees. What are you looking at? Beat it. Don't make me get up. It wouldn't be pretty. Shoo. Oh, I don't want to clean up the mess anyway. I hate the snow. They always snivel. Well, I'm over here at the bumper cars and the day has taken a turn for the worse. It's really cold, it's really windy, and it's been raining pretty good for a little while. So it is uh, becoming a pretty rough day, but uh, it's still not as bad as we've seen it here, although it is colder than we've seen it when it's been this bad. So, But I'm right here, I can see Lake Erie from here. 
So I'm just a hundred yards from the beach. So it's not surprising it's windy, but it is pretty rough out here. The other day I watched The Old Man in the Sea with Spencer Tracy based on the Ernest Hemingway novel. And it was really good. I've seen it before, but I picked up the DVD the other day. The special feature was a documentary that was supposed to have never before seen footage of, of Hemingway. And uh, it did, but it was like a minute long or something. So it was really short. So it was a little disappointing how long the documentary was, but it was footage of Hemingway on a boat fishing. And it was footage they had shot, I guess, for something, for a documentary about the movie back when they made the movie and uh, never used. And the audio was the documentary filmmaker, apparently, that shot the footage. That or it was the cameraman. I couldn't tell because I think the filmmaker was in the footage with Hemingway. But it was, it was interesting. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story of the old man in the sea, the story is about a, an old fisherman in Cuba who is having a streak of bad luck. It's been like 83 days since he caught a fish. And we follow him kind of on his 84th day. And uh, he hooks this giant fish. They say the name of it. It's like a marlin kind of fish, but it's huge. And he fights it for a couple of days. And it's, uh, it's pretty intense because he's fishing by hand, you know, and he's, so he's pulling on this, this fishing line, trying to catch the, this giant fish. And his hands are bleeding, and and he has other poles set up that are, you know, like the pole is kind of to hold the line up in the air. So when it gets a bite, he knows it, and then he just grabs the line and reels it in by hand. And he, he kind of cuts his other lines to pursue this giant fish. And uh, he fights it and fights it. And it's at, like, it's at least two days before he finally catches it. And he harpoons it and kills it and lashes it to the side of his boat which is this little rowboat sized boat with like a little mast so it's it's a sailboat but it's tiny and this fish is way longer than the boat and he starts to make his way back to the shore and along the way he encounters shark after shark that attack his fish that's lashed to his boat by the time he gets back to shore it's basically a head and a tail and a spine and he's exhausted. He's got to be in his 70s. Lives in a little hut with a dirt floor. And there's a young boy that's his friend that helps him. And uh, it's an interesting movie. One thing that took me out of it for a second, though, is in the special features, they had, like, some, some facts about the movie. And one fact was that Ernest Hemingway was in the last scene in the restaurant slash bar. And... Uh, I saw him instantly as soon as I knew that. It took me out of the movie for a minute. But I thought Spencer Tracy was excellent. I mean, the movie's a classic. And, and if he didn't win an Academy Award for Best Actor, he was nominated. I think they said, they said on the box for the DVD, this is like he got his sixth of nine nominations for Best Actor or something for Academy Award. So it, he was great. Cinematography was good, although once he got on the boat by himself, some of the shots were a little fake looking because I think those were shot in a pool on a studio lot.
prepare to be wildly entertained as we bring you Sideshow of Carnival of Magic. It's the next day and I'm hanging out in the parking lot of the hotel while everyone relaxes in the room. Turned out to be a pretty fun visit to Cedar Point. Uh, one of the highlights of the musical shows was it was a magic show but it was more dance than magic and singing and one of the scenes of the show was all of the girls in the show were dressed up like Freddy Krueger with the knife glove and the sweater. I can't remember if they had the hats or not, but I think they did. And they were dancing around. So that was interesting. Another highlight was last year when we were here for Hollow Weekends, there was a uh, mask on one of the mannequins that they have set up as you know Halloween decorations. And uh, it was the zombie from Lucio Fulci's Zombie 2 or Zombie, depending on where you saw it. And uh, with the, it's the one from the poster with the worms in his eyes. And uh, I saw it last year and I really liked it. And it was there again this year and I kept trying to talk my wife into jumping the fence and <laughs> grabbing it and running, but she wouldn't do it. And I think if I did it, I would be pretty obvious so I didn't, but it was that was neat to see too. Another highlight was there was this giant ogre, an animatronic ogre that would sit. People would crowd around him and watch him, and he would talk to the crowd, and then he would go to sleep, and then he would wake up every couple minutes and kind of yell at the crowd to leave him alone. And every time he did it, it was a different thing that he would say, like, um, that he was going to eat someone or he would yell at the crowd but he was afraid he would scare them to death or things like that. Last night I watched part of Horror Express again because I want to talk about that later this show. And uh, it was as good as I remember. Surprisingly good. A very hammer feel but that's not surprising since it's got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in it. But like I said later this show we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> I'll finish that tonight and then we'll talk about it. I did see The Old Man and the Sea the other day starring Spencer Tracy <clears throat> of course based on the Ernest Hemingway novel of the same name. I guess I don't have to say it's a good movie because it's a classic although all classics aren't good I, I've found at least all classics don't suit my taste 
and this one did. Tracy is excellent as the old man. If you're not familiar with the story, it, it involves an old fisherman in Cuba who's had a string of bad luck. He's gone 83 days, I think it is, without catching a fish. And we get to see him go out in his 84th and finally catch one. But when he does, <laughs> it's a huge fish. It's a fish like they've never seen, everyone says. And uh, he fights this fish, and he, while he's, you know, the way he fishes is he basically drops a line into the water and he reels it in by hand. So he's pulling on this fishing line with this giant fish fighting against him, and he battles the fish for days, for a couple days. And uh, finally, he. He catches the fish. He knows what he's doing. He fights it correctly. And he gets it to come to the surface and he harpoons it eventually. And he lashes it to his boat. And his boat is this tiny little rowboat with a little mast on it. So it's the fish is bigger than the boat. And after he does that, he starts back for shore because he's way out in the ocean. He, while fighting this fish, you know, it's pulled him farther and farther and farther and farther and farther out. So he's, he's way out. And as he heads back for shore, he starts to be followed by a shark and it attacks the, the fish that is lashed to his boat and starts to take bites out of it. And his response is to fight the shark, you know, with his harpoon. And he harpoons it. I think the first one is the one where he harpoons it in the, and it swims off with his harpoon. If it's not the first, it's the second or third. But um, sharks keep smelling the blood from the first attack and keep attacking his, sh his fish that's lashed to his boat. And little by little... There's not much left to his fish. and uh, But he keeps fighting. He, When he loses his harpoon, he takes his knife and ties it to an oar. And he, lose, he, he doesn't lose that. He breaks his knife. And then he uses the oar to hit the sharks, and he loses the oar. And so he has like a club that he uses in, to club the fish. He uses that and loses that. So he ends up taking the handle out of the rudder that he steers with and hits the sharks with that but eventually there's not much he can do there's just a head and a tail and a spine left lashed to the side of the boat and you know eventually he makes it back to shore it's late at night everyone's asleep so he leaves the fish lashed to his boat goes home and goes to sleep and the next day everyone sees the fish, you know, lashed to his boat. And, of course, he's become kind of this joke in the village because he's an old fisherman, you know, who hasn't caught a fish in 83 days. He doesn't have good luck. He's basically lost the ability to fish, everyone thinks. But this proves to them that he is still a great fisherman. And, uh, you know, people have newfound respect for him. And the young boy who... Uh, who was his friend, who was his fishing partner, but wasn't allowed to fish with him anymore by his parents because he 
he's bad luck, they said. Says he's going to start fishing with them again and they're going to have good luck and all of that. So, so it's a happy ending for the most part, even though he doesn't, doesn't get the fish. You know, he, he ends up without the fish because it's basically a head and a tail. But um, he's won back his respect you know, by the village. And so it's, it's a good movie. The only negative I saw was, um, which was, really wasn't a negative, um, in the special features, one, they had a bunch of facts about the movie. And one was that Ernest Hemingway is in one of the scenes, the last scene in the bar, when the young boy goes to get the old man some coffee. Ernest Hemingway is in the scene. And once you know he's in the scene, he's like very obvious. So as soon as I saw that, it took me out of the movie for a second. But it was still good. I, it was it was a great movie. I would totally recommend it. Um, the DVD was a little disappointing in that um, that what the main special feature was a documentary featuring film footage of Ernest Hemingway that hadn't been used before, so no one had ever seen it apparently, and. Uh, it was pretty short. I was just surprised how short it was. I was expecting something longer, like a half hour, and it was minutes long. It almost felt like a minute and a half, but it was good footage. It was Hemingway fishing and the crew fishing with Hemingway and him kind of messing with them. And so it looked fun. So it was, it was a good extra, but I was expecting a little more. I'm back home and while I was on the road I forgot to explain what Cedar Point is because I know uh, people from around the world or other parts of the country may have never heard of Cedar Point and it's a amusement park in northern Ohio it's on the shores of Lake Erie and it's famous for its roller coasters so um, if you heard that and wondered what the heck is Cedar Point now that I'm home <laughs> um, and listening to what I recorded, I hear some holes in my information on the old man in the sea. Um, I have the DVD in front of me. It's the Warner Brothers DVD that I just got. And that extra I was talking about, uh, it's a documentary called Hemingway, The Legend in the Sea. And... Uh, like I said, it was slightly disappointing because it was so short, but it was neat to see Hemingway fishing and, uh, you know, interacting with the crew, and it, that was fun. But I wanted to give you some information on um, the old man in the sea, just because I was kind of speaking off the cuff while I was on the road. And, uh, of course, it's based on the Hemingway novel of the same name, The Old Man in the Sea. And I've started reading a lot of Hemingway lately. I had never been exposed to it earlier in life when I was in high school or college. But I've picked him up lately. And I've read uh, To Have and Have Not, I think it's called, which is my favorite Hemingway so far. I've read The Old Man in the Sea, which was good. And right now I'm almost through with For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is really interesting. Um, I really like Hemingway's style. I like his... Uh, masculine style of writing and uh, 
that really comes through in the film version of The Old Man and the Sea. Now, this movie came out in 1958, starring Spencer Tracy, as you could tell from what I had talked about earlier, but I just wanted to give you some more formal information about it. It was directed by John Sturgis, and Sturgis calls it technically the sloppiest picture he has ever made, uh, which goes back to what I said about the uh, chroma key stuff or the backlot stuff or whatever, the the tank footage where uh, all of the stuff of uh, Spencer Tracy while he's fishing in the boat uh, really a, a little bit takes you out of the movie because it's not technically as good as the rest of the footage. And there was a New York Times uh, writer called Bosley Crowther, C-R-O-W-T-H-E-R Crowther, who commented on the look of the uh, movie and those um, those fishing scenes. And he said, among the film's shortcomings is that an essential feeling of the sweep and surge of the open sea is not achieved in precise and placid pictures that obviously were shot in a studio tank. There are, to be sure, some lovely long shots of Cuban villages and the colorful coasts, but the main drama, that of the ordeal, is played in a studio tank, and even some fine shots of a marlin breaking the surface and shaking in violent battle are deflated by obvious showing of the process screen. I agree with him. A lot of the stuff of Tracy in the boat while he's fishing and battling the fish has a little bit of a, a false feel to it, you know. So that takes you out of the movie a little bit, but it's still, it's not enough to make it a bad movie. It's still a good movie. It's a good story. Um, Tracy is excellent in it, but um, that is a negative. Also, another issue that Time Magazine noted at the time was that Spencer Tracy was never permitted to catch a marlin while on location. So the camera could never catch him at it. And the result is Sturgis must cross-cut so intermittently, fish Tracy, fish Tracy, that old man loses the lifelikeness, the excitement, and above all, the generosity of rhythm that the theme requires. Now, I don't totally agree with time because I don't think it makes uh, The Old Man in the Sea a bad movie. I just think it, it makes it a little stiffer. It, at times, it feels almost like a play because it's, you know, it's Tracy in the boat and you don't see the fish even until the very end when it, you know, it surfaces and jumps and he says it fills the sacks in its back with air so it can't go deep to die and it must stay shallow and that's how he's going to, to beat it. So, you you know, it, most of the movie is like watching Castaway with Tom Hanks. It's Spencer Tracy by himself and he's in a boat and he's talking about a fish that you don't see for a while. But it's still really good. It's It's a good movie. I would recommend it. Anyone who's ever um, seen a Spencer Tracy movie knows he's a, a great actor and he does a great job in this movie. Now, there's another movie he was in that I'm reminded of when I watch The Old Man in the Sea. I like it slightly more than Old Man in the Sea. And I almost feel like it's a spiritual prequel to The Old Man in the Sea because. Old Man in the Sea came out in, I had said, 1958. And Tracy did another movie in 1937 called Captain's Courageous, where he played a Portuguese fisherman named Manuel Fidelo. And when you watch The Old Man in the Sea and you watch 
um, Captain's Courageous. It's almost like um, uh, Spencer Tracy is playing the same character, except, of course, he's playing a Cuban fisherman in Old Man in the Sea, and he's playing a Portuguese fisherman in Captain's Courageous. But um, in 1937, when he was in Captain's Courageous, I think he's even better than he is in The Old Man in the Sea. Now, in Old Man in the Sea, Tracy was nominated for Academy Award for Best Actor, but in Captain's Courageous, he actually won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Now, I have to say, I am not and never have been a big fan of the Academy Awards. I don't think they usually, if ever, go to the actor or actress or movie that is the best that year. They tend to be very political, and they're giving to people, at least in my opinion, who help um, help f- advance the idea that film slash movies are serious and important. So the Academy will vote for and award movies and actors and actresses who help advance their agenda of making movies seem very important. And also the Academy Awards' main goal, I think, is to um, shine lights on movies um, that they think are important and help them to make more money. So, because uh, you always see movies, once they win an Academy Award, there's a there's a bump in the, the revenue that that movie makes. So, but anyway, it's kind of, you know, at least I can use it as a, um, a yardstick for their performances. Because I think um, as far as he goes in The Old Man in the Sea, he's even better in Captain's Courageous. Now, I've, I've given a synopsis of The Old Man in the Sea, which is pretty simple. The a sen- quick synopsis of Captain's Courageous is that Freddie Bartholomew plays this young, spoiled, rich kid who is on a trip with his father to Europe on a steamer ship, and he's messing around, and he, he's, he's set up as this spoiled, rich brat, and on the ship he's messing around, and he falls off of the boat. And he's rescued by a Portuguese fisherman, played by Spencer Tracy, as I said before, called Manuel Fidelo. And Manuel takes him on board this, the main fishing boat that he's on. And I can't remember what's that called. It's called We're Here is the name of the boat he's from. The captain of that boat is played by Lionel Barrymore. And you'll know him most, I would think, as uh, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, but in this he plays Captain Disco Troop. And uh, Manuel takes, saves Freddie Bartholomew and takes him on board. And the captain, played by Lionel Barrymore, um, offers him a job as a, you know, as a helper on the boat because um, he can't, you know, it's the middle of fishing season. The boat has to stay in the water and fish they can't take him back to shore you know because they're way out in the ocean and but they say you know they once they're they're full of fish they can take him back and it's like three months or something he's on the ship and you know Bartholomew has no choice his name in the movie is um, Harvey Shane and Harvey is a is a perfect name for him um, now while Harvey's on the, the fishing boat 
he learns how to help out, you know. Um, the captain's son is played by uh, Mickey Rooney, and uh, a very young Mickey Rooney. And throughout the movie, Harvey, um, you know, through mistakes and things, he uh, he learns how to uh, quit being a brat, and uh, it really he's really changed by his experience on the boat, and he becomes very close to Manuel. And uh, let me just read a uh, synopsis here from Wikipedia, just because I feel like I'm talking in circles, and I just want to be clear. It says. Harvey Shane, played by Freddie Bartholomew, is the spoiled son of an indulgent absentee father. Business tycoon Frank Burton Shane, who is played by Melvin Douglas, he's shunned by his classmates at a private boarding school and eventually suspended for the remainder of the term due to bad behavior. I think, I haven't seen the movie in a, in a little while, I have it on the DVR though, and I think he, um, I, I think he tries to bribe a teacher is was why he gets um, suspended. But his father realizes that the boy needs closer attention and guidance, so he takes his son with him on a business trip to Europe via a transatlantic steamship. En route, Harvey, as a result of another display of arrogance, falls overboard in the area of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. He is rescued by a Portuguese-American fisherman, Manuel Fidelo, played by Spencer Tracy, of course, and taken aboard the fishing schooner, We're Here, Harvey fails to persuade Captain Disco Troop, played by Lionel Barrymore, to take him ashore, nor can he convince him of his wealth. However, the captain offers him a low-paid job as part of the crew until they return to port three months later. With no other choice, Harvey eventually accepts. Befriended by Captain Troop's son, Dan, played by Mickey Rooney, he begins to learn the ways of working at sea. Under the guidance of Manuel and observing his equally tough crewmates, Harvey thrives, coming to learn that his former practices of cheating, bragging, and whining are not an acceptable way of life. He also finds the father figure in Manuel he never had with his own father and pleads with Manuel to allow him to remain on the we're here after their return. In the climactic race back to Gloucester Port against a rival schooner, the Jenny Cushman, Manuel volunteers to climb to the top of the mast to furl the sail, but tragically is mortally injured when the mast cracks and he is plunged into the water. Caught irreversibly in the tangled rope and the top sail canvas, Manuel is cut loose of the ropes to sink below the surface to his death, and Harvey loses his surrogate father and best friend. Eventually, the schooner returns to port and Harvey is reunited with his father, rushing to the fishing port of Gloucester, Massachusetts. Harvey's father is surprised to find that his self-centered child has become mature and considerate. Harvey refuses to be comforted by his father, preferring to mourn for Manuel alone, but eventually comes around. Now, you may think that um, Tracy's accent as Manuel is a little hokey, and I don't know, I, I've never heard a real Portuguese accent but I don't care. I think uh, Tracy's portrayal of Manuel is excellent. I think Freddie Bartholomew is great in this movie. I've never seen him in anything else, so I don't know um, if he's just good in this role or if he's a good actor, but um, he's great in this role. It's a great movie, and I almost wish I would have done this movie, Captain's Courageous, instead of The Old Man in the Sea, but um, the main reason I talked about Old Man in the Sea is that uh, you know I've been reading a lot of Hemingway lately, and I had just picked up this... Uh, DVD of Old Man in the Sea from Big Lots, so I wanted to uh, to talk about it because it is a good movie. 
and uh, you know, even though I enjoy Captain's Courageous more, I mean, uh, the emotional impact of Captain's Courageous to me is bigger. But Old Man in the Sea is still a great movie, and I would recommend them both. I think if you haven't seen either one, I would recommend them both highly. Oh, and also there's an aside that I saw on Wikipedia about Captain's Courageous, and there is a reference to it in Catcher in the Rye. It says that Holden Caulfield, the main character in Catcher in the Rye from the 1951 novel, is thought to look like Harvey Shane, who is, you know, Freddie Bartholomew's character in um, Captain's Courageous. And it says, as in the book, a prostitute tells Caulfield that he looks like the boy who falls off a boat in a film starring Spencer Tracy, though the film is not mentioned by name. I read Catcher in the Rye not long ago, I mean, 10 years ago, probably at least. Another book that I was not exposed to in high school or college I picked up on my own and I really enjoy, although a very similar book that I like a lot more is Stephen King's Rage, which is similar, but a lot more intense. And um, even though King is kind of um, distancing himself from it because the Columbine kids were fans of it, um, I'm still a fan of Rage and uh, I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of uh, movies or uh, books being blamed for people's actions, if you ask me. I don't see how rage could have made these kids do what they did. You know, there was something wrong with them. They were going to do something bad anyway. And they were they just happened to be fans of, of rage, which I think is an excellent book. And hopefully I will talk about sometime in the future. But Catcher in the Rye uh, has a reference to Captain's Courageous. So thought that was an interesting little side note. So anyway, that's The Old Man in the Sea and Captain's Courageous. I just, uh, I really enjoyed them both. And I thought uh, if for people out there who haven't seen either one, I would highly recommend them both. Yay-ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Yay-ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. One stop, pick some biscuit and throw them away. Next day, no more fish come around, boat to play. Yay ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Yay ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Said cabbage to fish cake who lay on one dish. I beautiful cabbage, you only poor fish. Yeho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Yeho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Now, before I start talking about the main movie that I watched this time, which is Horror Express, I wanted to mention that when I was at Cedar Point, uh, one of the highlights of the musical shows that I saw was uh, when they started singing It's Raining Men. And suddenly from the the grid above the stage, body parts started falling to the stage. And uh, you, you can hear it if you uh, jump back and listen to the, uh, the little montage I did of the music from the... Uh, from the stage shows. Um, when you hear Raining Men, you hear me start laughing when uh, I start to see the bodies, body parts falling from the ceiling. Um, it is pretty cool. It was a good idea. And all of those clips are sung by the cast, except for um, 
that little part where uh, Vincent Price's voice is in Thriller, I, I would think that's probably like a karaoke version of Thriller because the cast was actually singing Thriller. But you can tell that's really Vincent Price's voice. So, um, But I just wanted to say that before we move on to Horror Express because it was hilarious. All right, now a movie I watched uh, this week for this show it's called Horror Express, and I had said earlier in my parking lot uh, part of the show that uh, it does have a hammer feel because uh, it stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and another notable cast member is Telly Savalas, who I think is an underrated actor because whenever you see him in a movie, he's really good. And I think part of the problem is that he, because he played Kojak, People tend to minimize him as a TV guy. But when you see him in movies, he's excellent. I mean, Dirty Dozen comes to mind. He's a great part of that movie. And uh, and also Kelly's Heroes, he's really good in that. I think he's Big Joe in that. And he's, you know, so it, it's hard not to like Telly Savalas when you see him in a movie. And in this uh, movie, Horror Express, it's no exception. He's really good in it. Now, Horror Express is a 1972 Spanish horror film. But, like I said, because of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing's presence, it feels like a Hammer movie. Now, one of the things I had heard about the production of Horror Express, and, and I, had, I also saw it on, um, on Wikipedia, and it said, Securing Lee and Cushing was a coup for the producer since it lent a certain atmosphere reminiscent of Hammer films, which is, like I said, many of which starred both of the actors. However, when Cushing arrived in Madrid to begin working on the picture, he was still distraught over the recent death of his wife and announced to Gordon, the producer, that he would not do the film. With Gordon desperate over the idea of losing one of his important stars, Christopher Lee stepped in and put Cushing at ease simply by talking to him about some of their previous work together. Cushing changed his mind and stayed on. And even though I think Cushing's part's a lot smaller in this movie, he's kind of a side character, um, I think it's important that he stayed. Because without him, I don't think it would have been as good of a movie. But, you know, it would have been still good. But uh, I think he and uh, Lee together were really good. So I'm glad he stayed. And it said, another side note is, like all the Italian and Spanish films of the period, Horror Express was filmed mostly without sound, with effect and voices dubbed into the film later. Lee, Cushing, and Savalas all provided their own voices for the English market. And you can tell, because anyone who's ever seen them in a movie can tell that it's their actual voices. Uh, in Wikipedia, there are some interesting um, thoughts on the theme of Horror Express. It says that it features a number of familiar horror science fiction elements. The most obvious reference would be the short story, Who Goes There?, which had previously been the inspiration for the 1951 film The Thing from Another World, and as everyone knows, also was the inspiration for John Carpenter's The Thing. Who Goes There? also dealt with an alien who could assume the form of human beings, threatening an isolated group of people and interested in building a spacecraft so that it could escape the Earth. And that is what this movie is about. I'm going to read a quick, although it looks big on, on screen. 
plot synopsis. I'm going to start using these Wikipedia synopses just because when I start to synopsize myself, I feel like I'm rambling. So now, um, according to Wikipedia, which I'm a fan of, I hear a lot of people rip on, but um, I'm I'm a fan of um, just uh, oh some quick facts. Horror Express is 90 minutes long. It had a budget of 300,000 and was released in Spain in October of 1972. Main stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Telly Savalas. And it was directed by Eugenio Martin. It was also produced by Bernard Gordon and Giorgio Sacristan. But anyway, a quick synopsis. Professor Alexander Saxton, played by Christopher Lee, is an anthropologist returning home to Europe via the Trans-Siberian Railway, bringing with him the frozen remains of a primitive humanoid creature, which Saxton is sure is the missing link in the evolutionary chain. Also on board is Dr. Wells, played by Peter Cushing, a colleague of Saxton's. Mysterious deaths occur even before the train sets out. A thief is found dead on the platform after having looked into the crate, bleeding from his eyes which have turned blank and white. A Rasputin-esque monk, played by Alberto de Mendoza, who actually is one of the most interesting characters in the movie, at least because of the way he played him, who acts as a spiritual advisor to the Count and Countess waiting to board the train, claims that the crate is evil. Saxton is eager to keep his find a secret from everyone, especially Dr. Wells, but Wells pays the baggage man to look into the crate. When he does, he is also killed by the glowing red gaze of the creature which escapes the confines of his crate. The murders continue while the creature haunts the moving train. The victims found with blank white eyes, and an autopsy leads Wells and his assistant to hypothesize that the brains of the victims are being drained of memories and knowledge when the fossil is gunned down by Inspector Miroff, who was a, um, like a cop on the train, an authority in charge of the train. Yeah. The threat seems to have been vanquished. However, Saxton and Wells discover images embedded in liquid inside the eye of the fossil, images that reveal a prehistoric Earth as well as a view of the Earth from outer space. Now, this movie's set in 1902, I think it is. So at that point, we've never been in space, so no one would know what Earth looks like from space. So it's this is a really cool idea. They deduce that the real threat is a formless alien creature that was simply inhabiting the body of the fossil and that it has now transferred itself to the inspector, which it has, we've learned. The monk senses the evil presence inside the inspector and pledges allegiance to it, believing it to be Satan, which we kind of think for a while. When news of the murders on the train is wired to Siberian authorities, the train is stopped and an intimidating Cossack named Captain Kazan, which is played by Telly Savalas, boards with a small group of his men. Kazan believes the train is housing rebels and is only convinced of the alien's existence when Mirov is discovered to be the creature due to his glowing eyes and is shot down. Now, one problem I have with Mirov is the creature transfers its consciousness from the prehistoric body to Mirov, right? And he looks exactly like normal, except his arm is prehistoric. It's like this this hairy prehistoric arm, which doesn't make sense because nothing of the prehistoric creature that we see, even though it's you know it's they never show it fully and it's in the dark, has anything to do with whatever previous incarnation this this alien had, any previous host, I guess. 
So that's silly, but I think it's a way to show that Miroff is the creature. So it's it's clever, but at the same time, it's it's a little silly because it shouldn't happen because the consciousness transfers, the body should be exactly the same. So it says then, before Miroff dies, the alien transfers itself into the monk, who is, I think, the most interesting character in the movie. The passengers flee to the caboose while the monk murders Kazan and his men by draining them of their minds. At one time, Saxon manages to hold the monk at gunpoint under a light, as bright light will prevent the entity from draining minds or transferring to another body. The creature monk explains that he is really an energy being that traveled to the earth from another galaxy with others of his kind. For some reason, dozens of millions of years ago, the energy being was abandoned on earth by its companions. It lived on the earth alone for tens of millions of years, taking the bodies of Prozoa. It lived on the earth alone for tens of millions of years, taking the bodies of Protozoa, fish, and various animals to survive. Apparently, I cannot live outside of a living body for longer than a few moments, and a fatal injury plus bright light or the absence of a suitable host to transfer to is fatal to it. The energy being implies that as it predates the human species, it has as good a right to live on the earth as humans do. The creature monk begs not to be shot and then manages to escape. Saxton rescues the countess from the creature, but it resurrects all of its victims as white-eyed zombies. The zombies chase Saxton and the countess back to the caboose, where the others are waiting. As they desperately work to detach the caboose from the rest of the train, the Russian government sends a telegram to the next station ahead, instructing them to destroy the train by sending it down a spur leading over a cliff. The operators follow this order, believing that they may be at war. The creature monk kills the train's engineer and starts to operate the train, just as the surviving passengers manage to separate themselves from the rest of the train. It goes over the cliff to a fatal impact below, with the creature monk knowing he was outwitted and screaming his last. The caboose rolls to a safe stop precariously near the edge where the survivors watch the fire consume the train and the unnatural habitants within. So that is Horror Express. Uh, what I'd like to say about it is Christopher Lee is very good in it. He's um, wasted a little, I think, in it. I think Cushing gets a little more of the fun in the movie. But um, by far, Telly Savala steals the movie in the parts that he's in. He is very charismatic. He makes you care about his character. Um, and for the short time he's in the movie, he's really good. Um, one thing I'm amazed about is how they recorded these movies mostly silent and dubbed the audio in later. It's got to be pretty hard, and uh, they did it pretty well. I thought it was really good. I, For years, I didn't know this was a Spanish movie, and then suddenly I found out, and I was surprised because, like everyone, I'm sure I thought it was a Hammer movie, and uh, it's not, but it was really good. I really enjoyed the Horror Express, and my version of it is a public domain version on DVD. It says it's 85 minutes, standard full frame, rated R, and uh, I paid a dollar for it at Dollar Tree, and it was well worth it. It's a good movie. I would totally recommend it to anyone who uh, is a fan of uh, The Thing, because like they said in, the, in one of the themes earlier, 
it is similar to the thing in its theme of an alien who can transfer from body to body but appear human also if you're a fan of christopher lee or peter cushing it's it's a really i think it's a really good movie i think uh, a new transfer of it would make it um, probably a lot more popular because it's a really rough version of the movie it's obviously it's transferred from a print and the print doesn't seem to have been in great condition oh no you know what it's transferred from a vhs transfer of it that's what it is because there's a point late in the movie where the video breaks up exactly like it were a bad videotape and the tracking or something is trying to catch up with it so um, it's obviously a dvd made from a vhs so it suffers from that visually because there are times where the creature is in a crate and uh, you see the glowing red eyes and it's so dark you can't really see what's going on and i had heard that the dvd is going to be re-released on blu-ray soon and i had heard on the nashi cast which is an excellent podcast something about um, it coming out on blu-ray when it was supposed to be earlier in october but now it's been changed to late in October, so it's not out yet. But depending on when you hear this, it may be out, so you may want to look for that version. But you can't beat a dollar. Um, I've also seen it on um, some of the Mill Creek multi-packs, so um, it's on there too, and it's probably the same version. So don't expect great quality visually because it is a you know it's not a great dub of it or a great transfer. But it's better than nothing, and for a dollar, what can you expect? But um, if you you if you're patient, and you may not even have to be that patient, because by the time you hear this, it may be out on Blu-ray. You may be able to get a great version of it. And I think once it looks good, I think a lot of people are going to really like this movie. There's someone else in the audience that I would like you to meet. He's one of the coolest actors in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he's been a friend of mine for a long, long time. He came on a movie set when I was doing a movie called Kid Galahad. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> it's the first time I met him. He's been in to see my show. He's got the number one show on television. Mr. Tillis Zavallis. Now to kind of wrap up the second episode of the Dark Room podcast, I wanted to jump back and talk about that zombie or Zombie 2 mask that I saw at Cedar Point. Um, I saw it somewhere on here on Wikipedia. They have a list of memorable scenes from Zombie. Now, I saw it as Zombie, Z-O-M-B-I-E. When I was a kid, I saw it at the Northgate Cinemas in Hazel Park, Michigan. Rode my bike up and watched it as a kid. And uh, uh, the main thing that really stuck with me from that viewing was the chunk of wood in the door through the eye. But... Um, this mask that I referred to is from uh, a scene in the movie. It says, uh, and it's been a while since I've seen it. I have the DVD here, the Shriek Show version of it. The 25th anniversary special edition from Shriek Show. And they call it Zombie 2 in their version Z-O-M-B-I 2, which is what I think it was known as in Europe. And uh, if you look on the back of the case... Because the, actually, on the front of the DVD and the back of the case is the zombie I'm referring to that the mask is of. And it says, uh, the uh, 
the memorable, one of the memorable scenes is of the zombie. And it says that the third scene involved the fetid worm-eyed zombie played by stuntman Ottavio Delacqua, a rotting reanimated long-dead conquistador that impetuously bites and excavates the throat of a petrified Susan Barrett or Barrett. So that is the character that I'm referring to that the mask is. And I went online and looked up this mask just for the heck of it. And it goes for anywhere between in the $40 to the $70 range. So it is a pricey mask. <laughs> so I should have jumped the rail and grabbed it, but I didn't want to get in trouble at Cedar Point. But uh, if I could get it for free, I would get it. But I don't know if I would pay 50 to $70 for it because it was pretty... Uh, it was cool, but that's pretty high. But um, one interesting note about Zombie or Zombie 2 is that this month, if you hear this before October 21st or 22nd, Zombie is being re-released into the theaters for two days. And it's a digital version of it because Blue Underground is re-releasing it on Blu-ray this month, I think. It comes out after the theatrical run. So I'm hoping to get to see it. Our local, one of our local art theaters is showing at, at midnight on the 21st and the 22nd of October. So I'm hoping to get to it. And if I do, I will report on it because it says, uh, you know, you'll see it like it's never been seen before. And of course I saw it on film back in 79, 80, I think it was when I saw it at the Northgate cinemas. So I'll tell you if it, uh, if it's as good as I remember in the theater. But I've seen it on DVD multiple times since, so uh, I'm familiar with the movie. You know, Some of the details have uh, escaped me, but uh, it's still a good movie. Oh, and also another mask they had at Cedar Point, almost next to the mannequin that had the zombie mask, had a um, Gates of Hell mask, it's called. I looked it up online. It's like from the cover of one of the DVD versions of Gates of Hell. And that mask is going for in the $50 range. So I told my wife she should jump the fence and get that mask and the zombie mask, but she wouldn't do either. Anyway, another interesting thing I saw lately or recently was on Turner Classic Movies, which is my favorite television network. It's a great network commercial free and it shows great movies um, you'll learn a lot by watching Turner Classic Movies um, recently John Carpenter was on hosting a night of movies and he of course hosted uh, Thing from Another World which he remade as The Thing and it was interesting his, uh, his talk about it I can't remember the details of what he said but uh, it was really interesting to, uh, to hear him talk about it and I didn't DVR that one but I DVR'd another movie I think it was it it was called it the terror from beyond space I think I can't remember but I did DVR that so um, after I watch that I'll talk about uh, um, John Carpenter's uh, comments about it but he was very interesting when he was talking about the thing with Robert Osborne and uh Hopefully uh, they replay that because it was very interesting. Um, I also saw recently Steamboat Bill Jr. on TCM. And it's a silent movie starring Buster Keaton. Let me give you some facts on that one. It was made in 1928, a feature-length comedy featuring Buster Keaton. It was a silent movie released by United Artists. And a quick plot of it is that the story concerns a young man straight out of college 
making good as a Mississippi steamboat captain trying to follow in his father's footsteps, and falling in love with the daughter of John James King, played by Tom McGuire, who was his father's business rival. Now, normally, for some reason, I can't really get into silent movies. I mean, when I see them in the theater, I have no problem. But at home, because I tend to do other things while I'm watching a movie, I'll start a movie and then I'll start working on the computer or playing a game or something while I'm watching a movie. And for some reason, when I start a silent movie at home, I tend to miss a lot. But for some reason, uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. really grabbed my attention. It's visually stunning. Some of the uh, stunts that Keaton does in this are amazing and visually you watch this movie and you can't believe it's 1927 and uh or 28 and you can't believe that that uh more people don't talk about this movie because it's amazing and uh it it contains the scene that everyone has seen of Buster Keaton where the front of a building falls forward and he just happens to be standing in the area where the window of the top floor of the building is. So the building falls on him, but he's standing in the window frame and he's saved from any injury. But uh, there's a, like a hurricane scene near the end of the movie that is amazing for, for the time. It would be amazing for now, some of it. And uh, Keaton is excellent in it. If you have the opportunity to see Steamboat Bill Jr., I would recommend it, even if you're not a fan of silence, because I'm not a huge fan of silent movies, but this one really grabbed me. And also after it, I saw a little bit of The Cameraman, which also stars um, Buster Keaton, and it's like a year or two later. It's a really good movie, and I've DVR'd that, so I'll watch that, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little more. I didn't uh, DVR Steamboat Bill Jr. I was just flipping through and caught like the last half of it, and it's a really good movie. It really grabs you, um, so I would totally recommend Steamboat Bill Jr. And finally, another movie I watched recently was Devil, which is one of the Night Chronicles uh, that is... Uh, based on a story by M. Night Shyamalan and I think produced by him. It says it was directed by John Eric Dowdle and written by Brian Nelson. And uh, it's actually a really good movie. I got lucky and caught it when we got a free preview of HBO, I think it was. And I DVR'd it and I got to watch it the other day. And uh, I was surprised because I had heard a lot of people rip on it. And, uh, I thought it was pretty fun. It's it's interesting how they deal with it because the majority of the movie, or I can't say the majority, a chunk of the movie takes place in an elevator that is stuck in a building. And uh, it's interesting how they deal with that. There's a plot synopsis on Wikipedia, but it's huge, and I don't really want to go into it that in-depth right now. I just want to say that uh, I thought it was well-acted. I thought it was well-directed. Um, I thought it was very interesting. Um, I liked the twist because because it is an M. Light Shyamalan movie, you expect a twist, and uh, I actually got a kick out of it. And because early in the movie, I was disappointed by what happened, and I was hoping that the twist would be what, what um, it actually ended up being. But uh, for a little while, I was disappointed because one of the characters dies, um and uh later comes back so but uh i again i don't believe in spoilers 
because I don't think the ending of the movie is the most important reason to watch it. So I'm not a fan of spoilers uh, being an issue because uh, when you watch a movie or read a book, you're not watching it or reading it for the ending. You're watching and reading it for the entire experience. Um, but with Devil, I'm not going to um, ruin for some people why uh, I like the, the ending. Uh, so if you haven't seen Devil yet, I mean, it came out in 2010, so it's a year old. So uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you if you believe in spoilers. But uh, it's a fun movie, and I think the ride is, is better than the ending, if you ask me. But it's all good. So if you get a chance to check out Devil, especially if it's on cable for free, I would totally recommend it. Although I am a huge M. Night Shyamalan fan, I'm not a hater of Shyamalan. So if you are, you may not like it, but... Um, I still think you'll like it. I think it's fun, and I think you'll get a kick out of it. So anyway, that is it for the second edition of the Dark Room Podcast. Hopefully you got something out of it. I got a kick out of recording at Cedar Point. Um, I know it's not the best audio, and what I was saying isn't the best, but uh, it was just fun <laughs> in the middle of kind of a stormy, cold, really cold day to uh, kind of ramble on about movies. So I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see what I come up with for the third show. Anyway, until then, take care, and I'll see you next time. Feed the pig! Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.